Hi, everybody. Welcome to our uh, third in the series about building confidence and independence. And today we're lucky enough to have Rebecca Lowe's, who's um, who can introduce herself and her role in just a sec. Her case study looked at the introduction of a desensitization program to teach teeth brushing, um, which I think everyone will have had some contact with as a practitioner or had had worries about it or can kind of see it looming on the horizon. We also have our head of therapies, Tom Bailey and Taylor Christensen, who's OT, which obviously like valuable input in regards to kind of um, task analyses and motor control and all those types of essential components to this. Um, so um, everyone kind of take introduce yourselves like Rebecca, how about you go first? Yep, so I'm Rebecca. I'm one of the ABA supervisors um, at Beyond Autism Schools. Um, I'm currently in Tram House School, but I've predominantly worked at Park House with the younger ones, um, and I've been here for four years now, just over four years. Um, so this case study is about a boy in my old class who was eight years old. Oh, cool. And you're also sort of partway through your BCBA supervision. I am, you... yeah. So I got my master's in December last year. So I've just got that from uh, Belfast University and Andy has been doing my supervision. <laughs> Gosh, so much pressure. You weren't supposed to let that cat out of the bag. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks, Rebecca. Um, Tom, again, I'm getting sick of hearing your voice, I think, but not as much as mine. So how about you, uh, Introduce yourself again for those that haven't listened to any of the other podcasts. Hi, Andy. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm head of therapies for Beyond Autism. So I have the fortunate position of being able to work across the whole organisation, really. So I, I head up the therapies team who are working at Park House and at Tram House, as well as those therapists that are working in the post-19 hubs as well. So I've been with the organisation since September last year, 2019. Um, and yeah, it's good to be part of the podcast again. Thanks, Tom. And uh, Taylor, another quick rundown for, from you, please. Hiya, I'm the occupational therapist and I work at Beyond Autism. I've been there for about two years working across Parkhouse School and the Post-19 service. And I've been lucky enough to work alongside Rebecca with the particular people that we'll be talking about today. Very cool. Thanks, guys. So just uh, a point of reference, everyone will be able to see on the website at the bottom of the kind of where you click in for the podcast, all the different um, references that we used. And as I said before, to, in our other podcasts, we, you know, we like to think of ourselves as inspired by research, if not necessarily, um, you know, replicating procedures and stuff, but certainly being in that space where we see something cool and we incorporate into the thing that's really applied for us. So just to, just to point out for the listener, the references that we were going that you'll see in Rebecca's um, case study um, are Bishop et al. from uh, 2013, using stimulus fading without escape extinction to increase compliance with tooth brushing from um, the Autism Spectrum Disorder publication. Carter and colleagues in 2019, dental desensitization for students with autism spectrum disorder. Um, through graduated exposure and so on, that's general developmental physical disability. Uh, Diabetal 2016, uh, this, this one talks about comparison of gingivital health and salivary parameters um, and general clinical diagnosis. 
Lewis and colleagues, Lewis et al. 2015, listening to parents, a qualitative look at the dental and oral care experiences of children with autism spectrum disorder, the paediatric dentist. Lou et al. 2008, um, the carers experience and behaviour of dental patients with autism spectrum disorder. Shabani 2006, uh, with Fisher, stimulus fading and differential reinforcement for treatments of needle phobia. And Stein et al. in 2011, oral care and sensory sensitivities in children with autism spectrum disorder. You guys can all see those references, and my goodness, there are a number, but I think really that's indicative of the issue, right? We have a massive subject that's got lots of social impact, lots of social significance for the, for the individual. Uh, and Rebecca, you took this on with um, in your case study. So do you want to kind of give us just a, an executive summary at this point before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts like why did it start what what did you do just in brief and then we'll go into the into the nuts and bolts so like i said eight-year-old boy um we spoke you know when we we're writing the ieps we spoke to his parents uh, gained some insight in what they're struggling with at home and what they really needed support with and one of the things to come out of that discussion was toothbrushing and you know they stated that they really struggle with it at home especially brushing the back teeth so he was all right at home with brushing the front ones but was very resistant when it came to the back teeth and mum was also concerned because one of the behaviors that this child showed is a chin hitting so he would hit his chin with his fist which was a behavior that's targeted separately um but with that behaviour, the impact on his chin and on his jaw, mum was worried about the condition of his teeth, making sure that they're healthy mm. and less likely to be impacted by that behaviour. Mm. So that's where it all came from. Um, and then we, you know, we got a toothbrush in school. We sat down and we sat down to do the baseline and figure out exactly what we needed to focus on in school and what, what the issues were. Okay, great. And so just from the therapist team point of view, would you say these are common common issues or things that you've come across yourselves in, in your practice around um, oral hygiene in general, issues with teeth cleaning and so on? Yeah, definitely. I think Rebecca has highlighted something that we work with multiple families across multiple settings. With teeth brushing in particular, it's quite an invasive um, activity of daily living. It's not something that a lot of adults like either. Um, so I've worked with multiple families for teeth brushing. Yeah, that does have a huge impact, doesn't it? I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean about the invasiveness of it all, because if you didn't, if you have a problem with it in the first instance, anyway, like conceptually, why are people trying to put things in my face? And then repeatedly doing it with a strong taste and the sound and everything else, and you really think that's a, a major thing, right? Definitely. And thinking about, I guess, the long term effects of not brushing our teeth, then you kind of then have to go to the dentist. And that in itself is a whole nother ordeal that is usually quite difficult for our learners and the people that we work with, given, you know, the sensory aspect of that, the environment, everything. So I think targeting it at an early age at this time where it's just a toothbrush rather than a whole dentist appointment is a really great kind of approach. Yeah. And then, Tom, I suppose the difficulty from a speech and language point of view, of course, is that you, your stock in trade is teaching communication and uh, 
you know um having people have their wants and needs met and then you find yourself in this kind of ironic dichotomy where you've spent all this time potentially teaching somebody how to say no thank you I don't want that and then it's like I'm sorry you gotta do this yeah sure it's uh you know I think for many people the the dentist is not a particularly great experience I think um you know that the wider impact of, of this work that um Rebecca's done this study on is is kind of crucial really because you know, it's the desensitisation piece that is, is hugely important. And I know that some of the uh, views reflected in the Lewis study from families talking about going to the dentist, having to wait for the dentist, that the anxiety that's produced there can be can be very difficult. So, you know, it's certainly something that's uh, has got a wider impact, not just looking at this particular study, but the wider impact of the desensitisation for sure. Yeah, it's interesting to me, actually, like looking at your reference list, um, Rebecca, there's quite a lot of stuff that they wouldn't necessarily I mean you would but like you didn't necessarily find this stuff immediately in the in the behavioral literature it looks like you've gone quite um extensive in your kind of um literature review if you like to, to see where you can find the actual issues and what's been experimented with before in the past yeah and from the reference list you know you'll see that some of the references have come from not necessarily dental studies but like ones that um, have focused on needle phobias, things like that. So, but similar procedures can be applied to the toothbrushing. And I guess to link to what Tom said, the Carter paper that we, we can discuss focused on that, focused on students going to the dentist and breaking that down and building that skill up as well. So yeah, once we've taught this child to tolerate toothbrushing, that might be something that we then later have to focus on. All right, thank you. Uh, um, just we're going to pause just there for just a second and have our first key word for those of you that are seeking CEUs. And Tom, we're going to turn to you, please, for a key word. The key word is Picasso. Very good, thanks, Tom. Okay, I I think this study, just in terms of if anybody had any doubt as to why this was important, or anybody had any kind of, oh, you know, this will be okay in the end. I think you. In your um, executive summary, you reference Lou et al. 2008, and it just talks about how, um, more, you know, without kind of desensitization or kind of teeth brushing as normal, if you like, people or children or adults, I guess, would have more invasive treatments such as anesthesia to undergo dental treatment. So for me, like that just knocks it out of the park in terms of why this is so important. Um, but Rebecca, over to you now, really, like, Tell us, give us your introduction and we'll, we'll kind of discuss that, um, you know, moving away from this idea that, or moving toward the idea, should I say, and Taylor, you come in as well on this, like the the uh, task analysis, if you like, as we go through this, the case study, it's not a fait accompli that people with uh, sensitivity issues around this will never have their teeth brushed or have to go un, uh, under anaesthesia. You can teach skills uh, in the same way as those that have got desensitization issues around needles, as you mentioned, or, you know, food intolerances, which I think is something we might talk about in the future. Now, the podcast is you don't have to have um, peg feeding if you can work on task analysis, you know. So, Rebecca, take us through your introduction. Um, anything you want to add that hasn't already been covered? Yeah, so I think one of the key things for me was that, as mentioned in the Stein paper, this is an issue for so many children with autism and in comparison to others with disabilities you know autism had the greater number of behavioral difficulties around oral care and more sensory sensitivities 
And if you think about the sensory element of toothbrushing, you know, like you said, you've got the taste in your mouth, you've got the feeling, the sound of the toothbrush. So it's a very sensory activity that we know that children with ASD can struggle with. Yeah, for sure. So that was a key thing for me. And also when you look through the previous research, so much of the interventions are actually quite simple interventions. You know, it's graduated exposure, it's um, stimulus response change, just building up the skill one step at a time. And for such an effect, you know, make such an effective difference to this child's life and their health. Um, we should definitely give it a go and, and see whether it works, which, you know, in this case it did. Yeah, phew. <laughs> yeah. That'll be a really short podcast. Um, okay, great. So then, just speculating now, guys, like, what do you think are the main reasons? Like, obviously, you know, people don't want to not teach toothbrushing to their children. So, you know, from your experiences, what, what have been the types of things that have uh, been the barrier? And we know that we know it's a sensory piece, but like anything else, like wh why do you think it is that people don't persist with it? I think it becomes a huge demand avoidance, you know, and if it starts from even just the toothbrush being presented, that can trigger so much behaviour, it could you know, they might have to try and restrain the child in order to brush their teeth. And it becomes this one huge effort and probably quite distressing as well for the parents if that's the stage it gets to, to see their child so distressed. So we spent some time in supervision talking about um, contingency maps and how it's not just about the behaviour of the child, it's also about the behaviour of the adults. So I think you hit it on the head there, like this big kind of behavioural, unilateral um, experience where it's distressed and it's also um, avoidance. Uh, Taylor, what you know? What else in your experiences have you found to be barriers? I think also it can be quite time-consuming for parents. Um, often, I find with self-care activities, um, it's quite difficult for parents. They might have you know multiple children or this like we were saying just before this is quite a stressful time for them so they don't really have the time to kind of wait out the child and also sometimes it's an education um, session as well I think you know this paper highlights the importance of liaising with parents to figure out what are important goals for them as a family as well as for the individual learner um, but then also alongside that then is the education that's needed to teach parents so that this is then obviously generalized from school to home but yeah I think time can time is a factor that's usually quite difficult. So obviously from an OT point of view you know I think this probably this type of thing would sit quite comfortably in in your discipline like what, yep. what kind of tools have you seen to be effective in the past? So specifically for like toothbrushing I'd similar similarly you kind of look at it from a sensory perspective desensitization definitely kind of reinforcement I think I look at it from the perspective I would for like food um, so we do a fun with food group and it's similar to just trying to get the pupil to be okay with looking at the toothbrush or the food so then looking at it okay can it sit next to you um, can we touch it becoming okay with that resource being okay with it it's not something that's only used in a really stressful time and that's going to ignite that anxious feeling within them um mm. 
and then yeah graded exposure like Rebecca was talking about I think there's like a huge amount of crossover um, between the two disciplines. Okay cool so Rebecca then with that context in mind like it, it, take us through how you went on that journey from the obvious kind of social significance into you know really setting the scene for yourself around the impact that it has across you know a quite a large net of, of re references um and then you know landing on the uh desensitization to needles piece did i forget who did that sorry who was a reference for that that but, one was shabani shabani yeah cool thank you so shabani and fisher 2006 so t take us through that and how you landed on your method considering you know everything that's gone on before our conversation yeah, so looking at um, the Shabani paper, that one was based on the needle phobia, like you said, and um, it was with a fairly similar individual, so quite limited communication, not very tolerant of a lot of self-help um, support and prompting. The way they ran theirs was they conducted a preference assessment and they ran a baseline to assess exactly at what point um, their students was intolerant to the needle. They found that by slowly fading it towards the individual, I think it was 61 centimetres away from the arm is where they could get that needle and the child did not move. So it's quite a distance from the child. That was then, um, they taught that skills with the graduated exposure, so slowly fading the needle closer and closer to the individual and reinforcing with the highest reinforcer when the child complied. I guess that's fairly similar to what we did in our method. So, yeah. so we took a baseline of exactly what the pupil could do and how much they could tolerate in school. Obviously, mum had reported that at home he could tolerate quite a lot apart from the back piece. However, when we did it in school, we found that he wouldn't really tolerate the toothbrush anywhere near his mouth. So we could see some behavioral contrast there between home and school. And of course, this is the first time a toothbrush has been presented in school and it's completely out of context for that child. We ran a baseline. We assessed exactly how much um, exposure we could give the child with the toothbrush and we found that he would tolerate tolerate it near his mouth but not quite touching the teeth. What we did was we ran a preference assessment with the reinforcers and this child was quite limited in their reinforcers so he likes his toy bear, um, claps, squeezes, little fidget toys. So we used those, we assessed to see what toys he would request for, which ones he was reaching for, and we used those in order to teach the skill. Did you find that it was a, a help or a hindrance having like limited reinforcers or, did, you know, from a practitioner point of view, did you ever get to any kind of sense of association and therefore were worried about the graduated guidance? There definitely was. So we knew that his toy bear was the highest reinforcer in the majority of the sessions and if he'd already had that in the morning and he'd had that throughout the day, the effectiveness of that would be reduced in the afternoon. So typically we tried to run the trials in the morning when we knew he was less satiated and 
his reinforcers would be more effective. And did you see any change in his kind of, once he knew it was coming, once he was like, uh oh, this is part of my curriculum now, like, did you see any change in his behaviour that you had to adjust anything else that surrounded the, the, the protocol? Not really, because the toy bear and the squeezes and the claps were used throughout the day for so many different things. It never really became fully associated with that one session. And we would also try not to just rely on that single reinforcer. So we would try and build motivation for other items so that we would have a little bit more of a variety throughout. Okay, that's cool. So um, did you kind of build in a, a particular task analysis for this or did it look much more like a kind of um, changing criterion design for, for reinforcement? And it, talk us through how you kind of signal success because obviously at the beginning it wasn't really um it could almost be like a fleeting moment couldn't it like from, from what i read from the study was is well the impression i got was oh tolerate it in your environment for just a sec uh and then you're done it, you almost make find it a bit difficult to understand whether the, you know you'd, you'd achieved a goal or or not yeah so we started with um the target for him to be tolerating the toothbrush touching his top teeth for five seconds. Um, and like you said, it was more of a change in criteria on design. So we would run 20 trials throughout the day, um, usually in separate blocks. So maybe 10 in one session, 10 in the next, just so that he wasn't becoming satiated on the reinforcers like we talked about. Um, and it wasn't too demand heavy that, that session. So, we would run maybe 10 trials in one session and we would give him a a um, physical count. So we would count one, two, three, four, five, whilst those, that toothbrush was touching his top teeth. Once he'd achieved that in 90% of the trials over two days, we would move on to the next step. So every trial that was successful was reinforced with his highest reinforcer. If it was unsuccessful, there was no social praise and he was given a lower reinforcer. So maybe a couple of claps or one of his lower um, sort of fidget toys that was still reinforcing, but not quite as much. I find that bit really interesting, actually, like the the kind of the, the I like how you took in, into account, like the, the, you know, you'd be forgiven for being a bit more black and white about that, wouldn't you? Like almost, um, oh, sorry, didn't do it, don't get a reinforcer. But you, you took that, you took the opportunity to actually continue to have uh, access to something that he, you know, he likes. He, why was that particularly, and maybe it's learner specific, but, you know, why did you make that decision about that? Yeah, so the student is a very early learner. So we wanted to still reinforce him sitting with us, sitting at the table and, and complying with that. So we still reinforced even the unsuccessful responses but made it very clear that it wasn't the target that we wanted. So if he pulled away within one or two seconds, we would just hand that toy over and provide no social praise versus when he was successful touching for five seconds, he would get all the social praise, all the squeezes, all the claps and his favourite bear. Happy times. So take your point of view like do you have you kind of experienced or seen 
I mean, obviously, you were an integral part of this case study, but, you know, in other practice, have you seen or been worried about the fact that it didn't look like there was almost like a, a nod to the effort through a less preferred reinforcer for a child? I think because I know the pupil that Rebecca is referring to, I think I would have done, like, obviously, I'm not a behavioralist, but I would understand why she provided that reinforcement at a lower level because it is actually difficult for him to sit there without much social engagement or just to, to attend to an activity for a short amount, short amount of time. Um, or have you seen it being a little less uh, structured and thought out before? Um, so I think in other environments that I've worked in that haven't had an ABA background, I think the approach to things like teeth brushing, what we're talking about, hasn't been as, I guess, concrete. But now I think understanding the process and the perspective and kind of thought patterns behind how you approach it from an ABA perspective, it's quite enlightening and I, it's very interesting and I can appreciate and I can start to understand why kind of some reasons as to why reinforcement and I guess things are going the way they are. So I'm just genuinely curious, like how much of this would be considered to be a range of development? So, yeah, the, the, the case that in Rebecca's case study, the, the, the child in question, eight years old. Is there a general, is, and anybody can kind of chime in on this because I, I genuinely haven't experienced it. Like do maybe paediatricians, dentists, um, possibly OTs, possibly speech and language therapists, if, if they came into the picture with it. Do they say, do you know, just relax, it will come? And at what point do people go, no, hang on, this is generally something that we have to take on properly? Oh, I see. I think that um, I, I think at certain points, some people will say, oh, it will just come. I think from an OT perspective, um, at that age, I'd be looking at like a couple of things. For, for this particular pupil, it was a sensory reasoning as to why it was difficult, but then also looking at a fine motor reasoning it could have also been that that could have been the task breakdown and for a fine motor perspective if it was you know they didn't have the ability to cross their midline to move their right hand to the left side of their their jaw that will come I guess with further development and engagement in other activities and we can support that so that might be like a just give it time they haven't developed that skill yet Mm. Um, whereas from a sensory perspective I think it's important that that is addressed earlier for some of the reasons we were talking about before, because it can lead to then a big tax on the health um, industry in terms of like, you know, children being put under general anesthetic and going to dental, um, big dental procedures that are going to exacerbate their, I guess, dislike for anything around their teeth. Well, and so much drama and so, and danger, I guess, like it's increased danger for, for um yeah, the risk the risks of it all are, are increased just by virtue of the anaesthetic, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that some for some self care things or activity breakdown, some people will kind of just approach us. Oh well, we'll just keep engaging it from like a top down perspective. You know, if you just engage in the task repetitively, they'll get it. Um, so sometimes that would be like an approach, but I think other times it is important to have a specific plan like Rebecca has done with this pupil. And I think that that's probably the better way 
to approach I mean it's dependent on different um person to person but I think really this is something that we should be looking at specifically for children with ASD that we're working with because we know it is difficult for so many families and so many individuals. For sure. So, uh, okay, cool. Thanks for that, um, Taylor. So, uh, Rebecca, you talked about the method. You kind of talked about the gradually getting closer and closer. Did, did you kind of in, encounter any any stages in this that took a little longer than the rest? And did you have to change reinforcers to kind of signal that uh, they were doing better? Yeah, so you can see from uh, figure one on the case study, the as we move to brushing the bottom teeth, that's where there's more of a spike in the data and it drops to about 60%, which is the lowest it falls to of successful trials. So it was becoming a little bit more resistant at that point. So we could say maybe, you know, there was more sensory sensitivity there or the demand was higher. At one stage, we did strip it back a little so as we were brushing the back teeth that was becoming more aversive and he was recognizing that okay every time the toothbrush comes near me it's going to go straight to the back teeth and it was becoming too demand heavy so we stripped the demand back a little and on we mixed the trials up so on some trials we brush the back teeth some trials we just touch the lips some trials we brush the front teeth just to intersperse it and reduce the level of demand needed from him. But we kept the reinforcement the same throughout, again, because of the limited reinforcers available. But we always made sure to, you know, reassess MO throughout the trials and make sure that that highest reinforcer was always being delivered for successful trials. Okay, cool. So so it's like a really interesting thing. So you didn't feel like you had to kind of, it didn't really matter to you that it was a high reinforcer. It's just about look, let's just get this done, and then it, and then we're in a, we're in a much better shape, and you can effectively have your teeth cleaning, or having your teeth clean, you can tolerate that happening. So was there was there any possibility of independence with this, or is this you know, as Taylor was saying, like uh, a learner with kind of um, poorer motor control? Yeah. So we definitely could potentially move on to him being able to brush his teeth independently in the future. What's important to note is with this case study, we were brushing the teeth just with water on the toothbrush. So that's all he was tolerating at that point. Okay. So we still need to fade in the toothpaste in order to properly brush the teeth, mm. which adds another sensory element. So once he was tolerant of all of this and he would happily have all of his teeth clean for five seconds. We would then go to the next step, which is introduce the toothpaste. Once that's successful, we could potentially look at implementing a stimulus response chain in order to teach toothbrushing independently. That sounds really interesting. So what sort of steps would you make with that to begin with? I would anticipate it would start off as a as a forward chain and we would start teaching from the very beginning. So Again, we would baseline it and silently but physically prompt those steps. We know that this learner can be quite dependent on physical prompts, so we'd want to reduce those as quickly as possible and go in with you know, the least intrusive prompt level. But 
that would be where we could start. Cool. So, uh, Rebecca, in your study, you talked about how it showed your results showed a similarity with Bishop et al. from 2013. Um, <clears throat> just talk us through why that was similar. Yeah, so they found similar results that they've had increased compliance with toothbrushing by also using the desensitization and graded exposure to the toothbrush and then building up the time periods for that. Because, of course, we're only doing five seconds at the moment. We want to build that up to the full two minutes eventually. So that will be the next step. Yeah, because it strikes me that, like, you know, you look at this study in isolation, just look some cool data, it kind of, you can really see almost in, in your visual inspection, you can see when the next when the next phase starts, it's like, oh, hang on, I'm not sure, I know I'm okay. And then it kind of really builds along. And notwithstanding how you had to kind of shuffle that about a little bit to make it not be adversive all of the time in relation to the back teeth issue, that that is it's just five seconds. And as you said, like it's not yet toothpaste and it's uh, not yet independent. And actually, you know, I've worked with, with learners in the past and, and jumped straight to task analysis and had similar problems. And I just wonder whether doing this would be a, a good first step for all or, or uh, something to consider or eliminate not doing, if you know what I mean, before you jump straight to task analysis. What, would you, what do you make of that? Because I noticed this wasn't a task analysis as such. It was more of a, as you say, sensitization. But, you know, how, how's your experience been? Yeah, so I guess by doing it as a desensitization, we we could have flexibility with how we run it. Whereas a task analysis is very set and structured, we, you know, move on to the next step, move on to the next step. By running it as a desensitization program, we were able to have that flexibility so we could take a step back if we needed to mix up the trials rather than having, you know, fixed brushing the back teeth every time we could introduce more of a variable schedule with it and reduce the demand effort which we wouldn't necessarily have been able to do had it have been a task analysis yeah for sure how about with for you Taylor like just reading it almost the pennies just dropped for me now reading it and and sort of having this discussion is the sensitization piece I think I know that I've gone down task analysis before to desensitise, and I wonder whether we missed a beat here. Yeah, potentially. I think they I kind of go hand in hand if we look at it. Um, you know, if we can't, if the pupil was having more difficulty with the back kind of back area, you're still going to be doing desensitization aspects and then you move on to the next part of the task analysis is how I would kind of look at it. Okay, so if someone was struggling at a certain step, you would then maybe look at desensitising that area before like dropping back in on task analysis, perhaps? Yeah, potentially, yeah, yeah. So, uh, great. So in terms of um, future discussion and, and conclusions, Rebecca, like, what did you learn from this? What would you do differently next time? What would you do again? So I think we can see that the desensitisation has really worked and as we discussed before, could be implemented with so many other students who we know struggle with this. And it's quite an easy thing that, you know, parents can be trained in and we can implement those programmes sort of at home as well, really, because that's where they need to be run. You know, we saw the behavioural contrast in schools. So we had to take a step back 
But actually, if mum was able to run this at home and build up those trials, they might have more success at home naturally, which is exactly what we want. So the next steps, I guess, would be for mum to be able to do that and hope that that and generalise that to home. And then for him to be able to be more independent and, you know, to brush his own teeth and to be able to have those daily living skills that, that he can do himself. Yeah, absolutely. It's to sort of building towards independence, but it, it strikes me that this, that some of this has got to be around, you know, going back to the point you made at the beginning, um, <clears throat> that reflected on it being like a, a unilateral, like almost like a paradigm. Like you don't want to brush teeth um, as as the individual because it, you you too is too intense for you. But then the person your caregiver, your parent, whomever, also doesn't want to. I guess inflict the level of stress or wants to avoid the difficulty and then going to Taylor's point around how much time it takes to to do this even at any stage and then when you really look at the level of detail that you've gone into here Rebecca around um the five seconds for each area with just water you just think my goodness like it really is a long haul and then it, and it stresses me out slightly to think that people just say oh you know it'll come eventually when you know, not always, but certainly, you know, I can think of a number of learners over the years that have had similar issues. And you just think, my goodness, like if you hadn't taken that on, the amount of time that it takes to consider that it would just happen eventually is is it's a bit of a worry, don't you think? Yeah, and you can see from that graph, you know, we started trials back in September 2018 and we got up to being able to brush the left side of the teeth for five seconds by, I think it's April 2019. So that's taken a good few months just to get to that point. And you can see it's something that really does need to be worked on, which, you know, if you're the parent at home and you've got other kids to look after and the level of time it goes in just to get to this stage, like you said, we've not even done toothpaste and him being independent in it it does take a long time so it is a long haul and then everybody's got to, i guess find their reinforcer in that as well so yeah a, a super tricky case okay well um i just wondered if anybody else had anything to add to that like taylor or or tom in regards to the the significance of it the methods used and similarities they've seen elsewhere or differences and then further discussions and implications that you might consider for, for future practice? I think that, um, like we've said just now, um, the, the time that has taken to get this, this pupil, and it's also similar, I think, Rebecca, you probably agree, across multiple learners, especially in our setting, the time that it takes to progress to, you know, just one step up or the next next area in the mouth is such a long time. So I think the next steps, I guess, looking at when we can be starting these for our for the kids at our school. So, you know, should we be looking at these in, you know, as soon as they arrive, obviously once prerequisite skills and things are achieved. But, yeah, because it takes so much time, potentially this is something that we need to be prioritising, especially with the, I guess, level of further input that's required and the intensity of that within dental procedures and hospitals and things like that. I think it's important. And also from a parental perspective, 
you know, this is really something that I think a lot of parents struggle with. Um, and sometimes we don't even notice the back of our teeth. So something to keep in the back of our mind. Yeah, and I just think, you know, there's so many competing contingencies here, isn't there? Just the, the, the natural human avoidance of wanting to do something like that or just having enough time in the day. I think it probably would apply to staff as well. Just, you know, how, what impact does it have on other areas of learning? And I, and I take yeah. your point entirely Taylor on you know as a field as we develop we really need to understand what it is like people talk about like the basics basics of, of contacting learning <clears throat> and having their kind of um the uh the learners uh motivation and the things that they that, that drive them at the, at the front and center but actually there are certain things that you've really got to focus on in order to be in a space where for learners that are going to have limited independence like let's not let's make sure that we endeavor to not have less independence just by something that is surmountable just with a bit of time taken yeah definitely and I think also to keep in the back of your mind like you you said Rebecca toothbrushing isn't something that you do at school every day um so unless we have that parent involvement um or for some reason you see the back of their teeth because they're doing something peculiar I don't know it's hard to pick up so you know I guess that's on us as clinicians to be asking those questions and seeking that information absolutely and Tom sorry you're going to say something well I was just I was just kind of equating it almost to to some similar sort of experiences that I've I've had throughout my career and I don't know Taylor if you kind of want to jump in on this or whether it's even relevant to add into the discussion but I was just thinking of the SOS approach that we we take to, to feeding as well um, the sequential yeah, sensory approach that you know it is very much that sort of um, desensitization to foodstuffs and, and you know working through in a sequential way to, to actually desensitize our learners to you know tolerate foods and it's kind of a similar thing really that you know it's, it's looking through and having a long-term approach towards you know a skill that is you know required and needed and families kind of come to us to to discuss you know they may have difficulties with with you know supporting their children to eat or to eat in particular places and and again you know it's that that approach that potentially is is is, is similar to this I know I've done something similar in a similar vein as well in the past where we had an approach to a young man who was scared of dogs we worked through a social story at the same time as and actually kind of you know, being surrounded with um, a, a dog that was that was kind of at school and, and just building up his tolerance to that and, and building it up in a similar way to looking at the distance that we were getting towards the dog, etc. So some similar experiences, but um, I just thought it'd be useful to share really just my, my thoughts and experiences on that. Well, it brings in this whole idea of our sort of shaping and chaining, doesn't it? And like having in mind what what the end goal looks like. Absolutely. And, uh, that might take a very long time, but you just don't want to have it. You don't want to lose perspective because I guess at, at certain points, communication has got to come into it a bit as well. Like once somebody has that skill, if they still find it difficult, giving them that option to be able to opt out just even for a short amount of time yeah. to achieve something is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I was kind of, I suppose it's a question for Rebecca as well of, of thinking around, you know, is it any use having visual schedules to support this to some extent in terms of, you know, which area of the mouth you're going to work on if you're looking at teeth brushing the front or the back and, and you know, giving that option almost. I, I wonder whether that is, you know, a next step piece, really. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think if I was doing a similar thing with another student, that could be something that I would look into, definitely. And I think it's good to note, like you said about the dog, you know, this procedure, like the desensitisation, can be used for so many different things. And I've definitely used similar things before for a student actually going to the dentist and doing one now, teaching a child how to wear their glasses and building up the amount of time that they're able to do that. So it's something that can be used with so many socially significant behaviours. Yeah, it's important to teach. So this reminds me of something you did, I want to say a year ago, though it feels really much uh, more recent than that where you worked on desensitisation for haircutting. How long ago was that? Yeah, that was probably about a year ago, um, maybe a little bit longer. The students actually made really good progress with that. So, so just for the listener, can you give us some kind of context on, you know, approximate age, the issue at hand, and uh, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, so the pupil was the same age as the other pupil we've been speaking about, so... Uh, seven years old Um, he is quite a bit more advanced so he can speak in full sentences we can have a full conversation Um, his academics are much higher and he's a lot more independent but haircutting is something that he really really struggled with okay and and paint a bit of a picture for that like was it um, what was it did you find out that was the issue in terms of why there was such an issue for him with it? So we spoke to parents and they said that it's something they've always struggled with. Um, we had a hairdresser coming to school and we thought it was a perfect opportunity. So we gave it a go to see okay. how it would do. Um, based on what the parents had said, we had really high reinforcers available. So we had the laptop and we also had edibles, which these people didn't have during the day as his reinforcers okay so we started with those and we sat down for the hair cutting and realized that he didn't tolerate anything so he wouldn't tolerate the hairdresser touching his hair combing mm-hmm. didn't tolerate the apron so we realized that we would really have to start from basics so that's interesting so did you at, at that kind of initial melee you must have thought that it was everything and anything to do with it did you end up ever kind of zeroing in on the specific issue or was it literally anything associated with it was um kind of an sd for a punisher so anything that was associated so as soon as he saw the hair comb out come out the apron the hairdresser coming towards him when he realized that it was a hairdresser and they were going to touch his hair he would not accept it um We'd already knew that having items on the back of his neck were really difficult for him. He really struggled with that sensation. So, like, T-shirts all had the labels cut out. Mm -hmm. He was very specific with what T-shirts he would want to wear. So, polo shirts, I think he struggled with more so than jumpers and T-shirts. So, we already knew that that was a barrier, but we didn't realise the extent of it. Sure. So they kind of, I guess, in that, it, was it literally like maybe hair falling down the back of his neck that was an issue or that wasn't the noise? I mean, I, I imagine if you think about it in the same way we thought about teeth brushing earlier when we were talking to Taylor about it, we were sort of saying how, 
it was the it was the noise, it was the smell, the taste, um, the level of intrusiveness. Would, would you say there was a multi element to it for for this lad, or was it more just simply like the the prospect of having things falling down the back of his neck was just enough to kind of really resist? Yeah, it was things falling on him. So seeing the hair fall on him, whether that was on his neck or in front of him, he did not okay. like that mess. We would encourage him to brush it off himself, um, or we would offer to do that straight away. But it wasn't enough to combat the the fact that it had already fallen on him. And that mess was too much, and it would escalate into challenging behaviour. Okay, right. So there, there's a picture for you. Like, I mean, I guess in, in a certain to a certain degree... It, I guess haircutting isn't as vital as toothbrushing because one of the things we were talking about earlier was how big a deal it is if you don't get a toothbrush. I mean, you know, for no other reason, well, I say no other reason, you know, one of the reasons being stated in the papers was around hospitalisation. So um, it's never going to get to that stage with haircutting. But at the same time, it's it's clearly kind of one of those things that needs to be dealt with. all right, so I think it's a common problem. I think we see a lot in the cohort that we work with across all, I guess, age ranges and developmental stages. So what was it that you did? How did you approach it? How similar was it to the um, teeth brushing desensitisation programme that you implemented? So so we started off uh, using non-contingent reinforcement of oh. those highest reinforcers, so the laptop and the cake. That wasn't enough, and it it would continually escalate into behaviour. So would that mean that those things would be present um, dependent on what? Like, would they just be there the whole time? So would they have a laptop in this lap? Or, you know, was it let us touch your hair and then you get access, that kind of thing? So the laptop was out continuously. Yeah. And the cake was being offered throughout the session. Okay, free access kind of thing. Free access. that didn't work. High levels of challenging behaviour were still present. So we broke it down in a similar way to we did the toothbrushing. So we started off, okay, we're going to touch the hair for five seconds and then we can have some cake. So we just broke it down. We removed the hairdresser so it was back into his normal school environment. Mm-hmm. And we broke it down to touching the hair, combing the hair and wetting the hair. We managed yeah. to do those for five seconds and reinforcing with those highest reinforcers. However, we just couldn't get to cutting. The hair falling on the back of the neck, falling in front of him, the reinforcement was not competing with the behaviour that that would induce. Yes, so, um, yes, what I'm seeing here is, I'm just trying to draw parallels, I think, just to make the point, really, around how you can have a very similar strategy but obviously a totally different personalization depending on the person you're working with i mean it's not directly comparable for all sorts of reasons but you know in terms of being inspired by um a set of strategies or principles of research you can see you can see the commonality so for me then this is reminding me of where we are in this story at the moment it kind of reminds me of the story that you left your case the original case study in which was You've uh, established five seconds in each area of the mouth, but with plain water. Yeah. 
and knowing that as you sort of stated at the end of your case study, the next steps would be, you know, introducing teeth, uh, toothpaste and possibly for longer in each area or what have you. But you didn't stop there in terms of phase for that, for the next young lad and the haircutting. Tell us what happened next. You were sort of talking about you couldn't get past or get to the haircutting. No. So we, we tried a different technique and we tried using in vivo modelling. So that consisted of a person being sat next to him with a wig fringe, which would be cut. So that... I think, I, think to, I think it's time for you to fess up here, Rebecca. Okay, so it was me that was sat with the fringe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I would sit next to him with the fringe on and somebody else would cut the fringe and for every cut I would get reinforced and I would access a piece of popcorn. The other child was then offered a turn and initially he said no I don't want to so we said okay that's fine and I continued having the fringe cut and as he saw how that I was accessing more popcorn he then said okay I'll have a go and so we did a cut and reinforced with the popcorn and he didn't react he was absolutely fine we gave loads of social praise and in fact all afternoon he kept then saying I want a haircut I want a haircut (laughs) so so we thought great we'll keep going um and he's loving it and he did and particularly the top of his hair and the fringe was fine Mm -hmm. Bill struggled with the back of the neck so we continued just working on the top of the head, on the sides, on the fringe. and He's got a crazy mullet at this point. Yes, the, the poor child wasn't having his hair cut by a hairdresser, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but parents were okay with that. They were quite happy that he was just getting his hair cut. Sure. Um, we then slowly moved to the back of his neck. So we explained what we were going to do. We were going to do one cut. We could brush the hair away straight away and he would get reinforced with the popcorn. And he chose to put his head in between his legs, which I thought was quite clever. We didn't teach that, but that's a way to stop the hair falling down the back of your neck. Um, And he accepted that. So eventually what we managed to do was fade it into the hairdresser. So the hairdresser came back and... Mm using the popcorn as reinforcement and some videos on the laptop, he would happily sit and have his hair cut by the hairdresser. So, again, we used the popcorn for the reinforcement, but we knew that the top of his head and the fringe was easier for him to tolerate. He was quite happy with that. So we would cut those on a variable schedule. The back of his neck which was a lot more tricky for him. It was a lot more, he had a lot more sensory, I don't know what the word is. He had a lot more sensation on the back of his neck, which impacted, and he, that we would reinforce on an FR1. So we would reinforce every cut on the back of his neck. Okay. Which I guess is quite similar to the other people in terms of the toothbrushing. So with the back teeth, he found that a lot more difficult so we would brush those and intersperse it with the rest of the teeth that we knew he found easier. Sure. 
I mean, just listening to your to the story there, like there's there's you can you can um, gather or observe like really clear behavioural principles there around kind of the high P low P type um, kind of paradigm of you know interspersing you know a, a sense of behavioural momentum for sure. Um, in the end, kind of interspersing things so you, the child is not quite knows what's coming but I guess contributes to the aspects of being able to tolerate and so forth you know clever use of reinforcement to kind of really um signal to the learner at, at both ends of the spectrum of, the, of of how effective they are by their autism I mean on the one hand you've got non-verbal you know fewer skills on the other hand you've got the other chap who's as you described way more academic a lot more verbal verbal vocal behavior um and, and so on you see clear links to shaping, obviously. Um, you're kind of shaping towards kind of your terminal um, terminal goal. But I actually think this is a story which demonstrates the power of the man more than anything else. And I wanted to just explore with you um, some of the conversations that we had with, with myself and uh, uh, and you um, and you and also uh, Melissa, who was you know obviously um, heading up that part of the team at that time. And what we discussed in regards to being able to escape appropriately. And there's a cool story about how that kind of manifests in the end. But maybe we could explore together the conversations that we had around um, what we said was OK in the face of really, really trying to try to do something that was difficult for the lad with the haircutting. Yeah. So he was always given those escape man. So he was always given the option to say, not right now, can we cut here? So he would point to the top of his head instead of his neck. Um, he was always given those options to escape. The other pupil who had significantly fewer mans could only request for his highest reinforcers, didn't have the ability to do that. However, if we saw significantly more problem behaviour than we did previously, or he was pulling away a lot, we would assess that and we would say, OK, let's get one trial and let's move on and let's reassess the motivation and let's come back to it later in the day and see if we can get it more successful then. And we would also try and intersperse the trials so that we weren't doing all 20 trials at once. You know, we would try and spread it out through the day. So it, it wasn't a really effortful session for him. Right. Which goes back to that the length of time it takes for these sorts of things to be um, established and actually how dynamic you need to be. Because on the one hand, it would be very easy just to consider, I mean, almost just like the follow through for the chap that was less able. I mean, as much as it sounds horrible to say it now, like you, you could almost imagine that happening. And that the fact that the other child had some language enabled a decision to be made that actually, if he says, no, I'm not ready yet, that's actually fine. But what you did for the, chap of the desensitization for the teeth brushing was set up your criteria ultimately of okay that we need to recognize and teach him that this constitutes communication and we'll stop or we'll change it or we'll make sure you're successful then you can move on so i guess this whole idea of uh, helping learners to um know how to trust those that are you know there for a large part of their day teaching them big parts of you know big skills really important stuff they need to sort of trust that they will listen to the behaviors that they're demonstrating 
Um, there's a really cool story, isn't there, about uh, the lad with the haircutting at the and at the end. I'm not sure at what point in the in the in the timeline it came, but it was around um, him using his his kind of commands to escape, but only to take a break and then go back. Is it, am I remembering that story right? Yeah. So he would always know that we were coming back to the haircutting um, either later in the day or he would have a break for a few minutes and come back. So when the hairdresser came in, of course, that was a lengthy session of maybe an hour yeah. of pure haircutting, whereas we'd only worked on maybe a 15-minute session of a few cuts to maintain that skill. So when the hairdresser came in, it was a lot more effortful. So during that, he would have the opportunity to say, either can I have a break or stop? I want to stop. I want to go somewhere else. And we'd say, okay, we can go and do that. And then we're going to come back. So, and we'd also show him in the mirror, you know, we'd say, have a look. Look, this part of your hair is really, really long. And this bit's all been cut. We need to finish it. And he'd say, yeah, okay. And he'd agree to come back. Yeah, which is perfect, isn't it? Because it's, um, it kind of flies in the face of the, of the principle of kind of escape extinction or, not even a principle, is it? it's a strategy, I suppose. But yes, it flies in the face of the escape of extinction. It kind of really puts a bit of power and autonomy in the hands of the child to a certain degree. Um, and, and then similarly, as you said before, with the chat with the um, desensitization to teeth brushing, you simply don't know as much about, you know, kind of the internal events that are going on. And certainly, I think all of us are a little bit resistant to things that we don't like to do. So you gave him scope to succeed, but had criteria in which he would set to say, okay, cool, we'll stop there, or you change your kind of ecological arrangement or environmental arrangement around, okay, we'll do a little bit now, a little bit later, and he mixed it up, and I think you talked earlier about how you didn't always do the back teeth and so on. Okay, great. So uh, thanks for kind of elaborating on that story. I know it's not, it wasn't in your um, in your original case study, but I know that you and I and, and um, Melissa spent quite a lot of time working with that young man, to, trying to work out how the best way would be to get his hair cut and for him to tolerate it and, and the kind of the mechanics behind that. And how there's similarity across the strategy, but the principle of having to change to meet the needs of an individual really, really key. So, um, thanks, uh, again, Rebecca, for your time. It's really interesting to catch up with you about some of the finer points in the case study. We do need another key word though. Um, and I think it's only right that we go to the author of the of the, um, of the piece, uh, Rebecca. What's your keyword for, to end this podcast, please? It's bottle. Bottle. Okay, great. Second keyword is bottle. Okay, great. So everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, please kind of go back to our website to look to see about any other podcasts that you might be interested in, and we hope that you come and hear us again. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.